0: Good morning everyone, my name's Debbie and this morning our Bible reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 to 32. If you're using the plain Bible that just has Holy Bible written on the front, it's on page 714. If you have the fancy front Bible, it's on page 1012 or it's behind me on the screen, I trust. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 32. And mine is titled this section, The Transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up the high mountain where they were alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one except Jesus, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves discussing what rising from the dead meant and they asked him why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first Jesus replied to be sure Elijah does come first and restore all things why then is it written that the son of man must suffer much and be rejected but I tell you Elijah has come and they have done to him everything that they wished just as it is written about him I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they bought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into the convulsion, and he fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, "'It is thrown him into fire or water to kill him. "'And if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us.' "'If you can,' said Jesus, "'everything is possible for one who believes.' "'Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, "'I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief.' "'When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, "'he rebuked the impure spirit. "'You deaf and mute spirit,' he said. "'I command you, come out of him.' And never into him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Amen.
1: Well, uh, why don't we pray as I, um, uh, and then we will come to look at this, so. Uh, Passage from uh, God's Word, Father. We th- want to thank you for uh, the Scriptures. We thank you that uh, you've not left us in dark uh, darkness, but you've enlightened us uh, by the by your Word and by your Spirit. Father, we pray now that as we uh, consider this passage, that uh, we would gain fresh insights, that we would be reminded of uh, those things which we know about the Lord Jesus and that we would be encouraged and challenged and changed to uh, live lives of trust and obedience to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, There's a story about a preacher who was uh, about to preach a sermon from one of those um, big old, uh, very high kind of pulpits. You know the the type that I I mean? the type that you, you've actually got to climb up a staircase uh, to get into the pulpit. Uh, we used to have, have a sort of a, a miniature miniaturised version of one of those uh, here in the church. Does anyone remember that? It uh, used to be over there in that corner. It uh, had a staircase to be climbed. But this uh, particular preacher, uh, as he was uh, climbing the stairs to preach... Uh, he did so with uh, with with, a, with an air of confidence in his face and in his stride. And yet the sermon didn't go all that well. Uh, and as he descended the pulpit, uh, he did so looking like uh, he felt very humbled. Uh, someone in the congregation said to someone else, if he'd only walked up the stairs with the same attitude in which he walked down the stairs... The sermon might have been better. (laughs) You get the point. It's a it's a made up story, but uh, it does I think make a point too, doesn't it? Uh, It's a point which doesn't just apply to preachers, but to all of us, Uh, because when we serve God, uh, in whatever capacity we're serving God, uh, we can be so tempted uh, to be putting our trust in ourselves. Uh, Whether we're doing something up front like preaching or like music uh, or whether we're serving in another way, um, leading a Bible study perhaps or uh, teaching kids' church uh, or um, teaching school scripture, Uh, perhaps we're using our gift of administration, we can all be tempted, tempted to trust in our own abilities, in our own intellect in our own preparation or even trusting in how god has used us in the past we can all be tempted and then we wonder why things don't seem to go so well sometimes it's in relationships that things don't go so well as a result of that And this was an issue for the disciples, uh, which we see in today's passage in Mark chapter 9, where the disciples attempted to do something which they had done uh, on other occasions. They'd done many times before, but this time they failed. (laughs) They completely failed. They were completely ineffective as they tried to drive out an evil spirit, but were not able to do so. But before that happens, uh, Mark tells us uh, of another experience, uh, of an experience which actually enabled um, three of the disciples to be faithful and to be effective in their ministry for the rest of their lives. So what was that experience? Well, if you open up your Bibles at Mark chapter 9, you may recall if you were with us last week that we saw in Mark chapter 9 verse 1 that Jesus had made an amazing promise. Remember, there was a a crowd of people that were present and that the disciples of Jesus were there and he made this promise that some of those present, some of his disciples would not taste death until they saw... The kingdom of God coming in power. Do you remember that? And imagine that, can you? Imagine receiving a foretaste of the kingdom of God, of the power of the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what happened next. If you care to look at at verse 2, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them, and there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Well, there you go. That's a, that's a strange experience, isn't it? Um, Jesus takes uh, three of the disciples high up a mountain, there's uh, Peter, there's James, and there's John, uh, who later became key leaders in the church. And on that mountain, two giants of the Old Testament miraculously appear speaking with Jesus it's Moses and Elijah. Now, it kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it, how did the disciples know that these two people were Moses and Elijah? I mean, it's not as if anyone alive actually knew what Moses and Elijah looked like. And uh, we can only assume that it was because of the conversation that they overheard uh, these uh, two uh, giant figures of the Old Testament having with Jesus. And why Moses and Elijah in particular... How does the appearance of these two help the disciples to witness the kingdom of God in power? Now, perhaps it is, and uh, this is uh, what most would say, it is because Moses uh, represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets, both of which are fulfilled in Jesus. And that, of course, is true. However, I think that we need to dig a little bit deeper here. I mean, Moses, uh, he is, if, if you wanted someone who would represent the law, who would you pick? You'd pick Moses, wouldn't you? He is the obvious choice. But if you wanted someone to represent the prophets, who would you pick? I mean, why would you pick Elijah? Uh, why wouldn't you pick um, Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah, for example? Why Elijah? Well, what do we know about Elijah? Um, he, um, one of the things I re- that strikes me about Elijah is that he, he got into some conflicts, didn't he? Some interesting conflicts. Uh, like, for example, the, the conflict on uh, Mount Carmel when Elijah challenged all of the prophets of Baal to determine whose God was the true God and, uh, and God... Um, spectacularly revealed that he uh, was the, he is the true God. That was a that was a triumphant occasion. Less triumphant was the conflict between uh, uh, be, 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 between um, Elijah and and Jezebel, the uh, wife of the uh, weak willed King Ahab. Which is not unlike what John the Baptist experienced with Herodias, uh, the wife of the weak-willed King Herod. Now these are a couple of the well-known stories about Elijah. However, less well-known is that the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, contains in it a prophecy about Elijah. In fact, the very final verses of the Old Testament. Um, God urges Israel to remember the law of Moses and informs Israel that he would send the prophet Elijah to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And so, if Moses represents the end of the old covenant, what does Elijah represent? He represents the coming of the new covenant in Jesus. uh, Who is described in verse 2 as being transfigured. Now what does that mean? That's not a word which we normally use, is it? In fact I don't think I've ever heard the word transfigured used except for this context. Uh, You might have a greater um, knowledge of English than I do, but uh, I think that this is fairly unique in terms of being used uh, for this particular instance um, the the word the original word in the Greek actually sounds almost the same as metamorphous it 's a word which we get metamorphous from and metamorphous of course we use far more commonly than transfigured metamorphous is uh, is what happens when something Changes radically, changes, or someone radically changes, um, like a caterpillar. A caterpillar, uh, caterpillar's metamorphosis into a butterfly. And here Jesus is changed, and his clothes become dazzlingly white, uh, whiter than any bleach in the world that you could uh, you could ever invent. Uh, would be able to uh, make his clothes dazzlingly white so that the disciples witnessed Jesus in his heavenly glory as he is now and as he is when he returns. How did they react to that? Well, Peter. Peter was so stunned That is speechless. And you know what Peter does when he's speechless, don't you? You know what Peter does when he doesn't have anything to say. What does he do? He he says something. Have a look at verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Mark uh, comments here that, uh, he didn't know what to say and they were so frightened. Now, there's a few uh, different views about what these three shelters represent and the scholars write a lot of stuff about this. You know, Does this represent the Feast of Tabernacles? Does this represent Israel you know, coming out of the you know, Egypt into the wilderness and so on? Um, I just kind of prefer uh, to go on what Mark said and that this is kind of what the first thing that popped into Peter's head. <laughs> I don't think Peter thought it through theologically, do you? But it does strike me. Uh, uh, Something strikes me about Peter's instinct here. That uh, instinctively, that he sees something of eternal glory and instinctively he wants to build something which is temporary. (laughs) Three-tenths. And also, notice this, that he puts Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. (laughs) There's a tent for Moses, there's a tent for Elijah, there's a tent for Jesus. And so what does God say about that? Uh, Check out verse 7. A cloud appeared and enveloped them. Now that sounds a whole lot like what happened to Moses up on the mountain when God spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And a voice came from the cloud this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And then Moses and Elijah, they just disappear, leaving only Jesus. Because, friends, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Moses represents the end of the old covenant. Elijah represents the beginning of the new covenant in Jesus. It's now all about him. Now, um, normally, you know how we've seen that, um, you know, sometimes when Jesus uh, performs a great miracle or drives out a demon or heals someone, that he tells people not to not to say anything to anyone else about this, uh, the messianic secret that we've talked about um, throughout this series. And normally when he uh, tells people to stay quiet about him, he doesn't put a, an end point to that, um, that cone of silence. Uh, he doesn't give them a release date when they actually can start telling others about what they've just seen and uh, what he has done. But here in verse 9, he does do that. He gives them the release point, the the point at which they are released from their secrecy. And uh, we see that if you have a look at verse 9, when would the disciples be able to tell others what they saw in terms of the transfiguration? What does he say? When the Son of Man is raised from the dead. That's when. And I take it that that's because it's only then it's only then when the Lord Jesus, when Jesus is raised from the dead that his heavenly glory will make any sense to anyone. Although Peter, James and John, they still had no idea what being raised from the dead actually meant. Nor did they understand something else about Elijah. Uh, you see, as we've seen... Uh, as Jesus and the disciples travelled around, the uh, religious leaders, particularly the teachers of the law, they kept on showing up, didn't they? Uh, In order to to find fault in Jesus. And it seems that one of their objections to Jesus is about the whole Elijah prophecy of Malachi. Uh, You see, when Jesus uh, preached... Um, what is it that he proclaimed? He kept on proclaiming that, that in his coming that the kingdom of God is near. And yet the teachers of the law would reject that. They would dispute that. Uh, they would say that, how could he say that the kingdom of God is near when Elijah hasn't shown up yet, as Malachi said he would? So they dismissed Jesus. Now of course they didn't know about the transfiguration but also in verses 12 to 13 Jesus says that the prophecy about the coming about Elijah coming to prepare the way has already been fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist who preached repentance to restore people to God Now, that was costly for John the Baptist, wasn't it? What did it cost him? What was the price for preaching repentance? It cost him his head. (laughs) It cost him his head. And now the teachers of the law, they're at it again. Um, If you have a look at verse 14, you know, speaking of Jesus, Peter, James and John, uh, Mark says that when they came to the other disciples they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. So Jesus asked, well, what's all this about? As if he didn't know. And then in verse 17, a man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Now, for the teachers of the law, this was gold. They would have loved this. The disciples of Jesus, they can't even drive out a demon. Mind you, there's no evidence there that the teachers of the law had a go at doing it either. (laughs) But they would have had a field day over this. And yet whilst they're arguing the point, whilst the disciples and the teachers of the law are having an argument about their inability, there 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 is a young boy who is suffering and a father who is in anguish because the disciples couldn't drive the demon out. It seems hopeless to them. So why could the disciples not drive the demon out? Well, what does Jesus say in verse 19? He says, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Um, What's the emotion that you kind of Feel in Jesus is in what Jesus says there. Uh, he seems to be exasperated, doesn't he? He's fed up. He's had enough. Unbelieving generation. Now, who's he talking about? Um, is he talking about the teachers of the law? Absolutely. What about the father? That's interesting, isn't it? Because the the father seems to have a um, a fragile faith. I mean, uh, why did he bring the boy to Jesus? He brought the boy to Jesus in hope, didn't he? In hope of the Jesus being able to help. But after the failure of the disciples, well, how would you feel if you were that father or that mother? How would you feel? In verse 22, he begs Jesus... If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If. If. Did you see that? If you can do anything. He's not so sure, is he? And it seems that, that he wants to believe it's his only hope, but he's fragile. And Jesus lovingly um, has has drawn that out of him. And when when Jesus challenges him on that, uh, he responds as a man man who who is humble and yet he is struggling. I do believe, he says. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Can you relate to that? And as Jesus draws that out from the Father, he then drives the demon out from the boy. What about the disciples? Do they believe do they belong to the unbelieving generation? Are they included in that? Well, check out verse 28. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. This kind? <laughs> this kind? What does he mean by that? You know, are, you know, are there different kinds of demons? So there some demons that um, don't require prayer in order to be driven out and others that do require prayer to be driven out. What does it mean? Well, this particular demon uh, we know was especially aggressive. I mean, uh, when he saw Jesus, what did he do? He convulsed the boy at the sight of Jesus. And that smacks of of defiance. Indeed, some commentators have pointed out that the closer you get to the cross, the more aggressive, the more defiant the evil spirits become. But if the disciples had experienced trouble in driving out this spirit, what should they have done? Given up? Got into an argument with the teachers of the law or prayed. For whose work is this? By whose power are demons driven out? By whose power are people's lives changed? It's not theirs, it's not ours either. I mean, what about us? What about you? We should all, every one of us, be involved in serving God in some way because God has given us all gifts and responsibility to serve him. And yet, as you and I minister the gospel, serving in various ways, we need to understand that this is not natural work that we're doing, that this is supernatural work that we're engaged in, that there is spiritual warfare that is going on. And we are privileged uh, to be God's fellow workers uh, in the building of his kingdom. Uh, We plant the seed, we water the seed. Who is it that gives the growth? It is God, it is only God. It is his work. It is his work which can only be done by his power. And yet we are um, so easily tempted to do ministry, to do works of service, rather than to be the kind of people that God wants us to be, humble, Trusting, prayerful as we do that ministry. Because ministry is a clash between God and Satan. And so it is only God by His Spirit who delivers people, who saves people, who changes people's hearts. Drawing people to Christ. Drawing them out of the control and the dominion of the evil one and into the kingdom of the son he loves. And he does that through his spirit. So when we pray, what are we doing? It's not a routine. It's not a ritual. When we pray, we are asking God to be at work. We are acknowledging our own complete um, lack of power to be able to achieve anything spiritually and we're asking God to do that work because we believe in his power, not in our own. That without him, we are nothing and neither are any of our works without God. The disciples, they still had a lot to learn about motivation in ministry. In fact, as they left that place in verse 30, in verse 30 and they travelled further with Jesus, Jesus took them to places where others wouldn't find them because he had a lot of teaching to do for them and he wanted to teach them that the Son of Man is not like a worldly king but rather that the Son of Man will be handed over, will be killed, and three days later be raised from the dead. It's the gospel, isn't it? The gospel which, after the resurrection, Peter would preach until he too lost his life for in, the, in for the sake of the gospel. And in 2 Peter chapter 1 as Peter knew that his end uh, was near do you know what he called his own body he called his own body a tent a temporary shelter which he would soon set aside because when Peter preached about the power and the coming of Jesus, when he preached about the authority that Jesus has, when he preached about the second coming and the, of, of the Lord Jesus in judgment and in salvation, he knew what he was talking about, and he knew that the gospel was worth dying for. because on the mountain of Transfiguration, He was an eyewitness to the majesty, to the honour, to the glory of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ who now rules on high, changing hearts by the gospel which we share but through the power of God's spirit. And so how unbelieving we are when we fail to pray because we trust in our own strength. So why don't we pray now? Father, uh, we acknowledge that uh, we sometimes like the disciples, that uh, we forget um, who it is that we're serving and we forget the power that is necessary to build your kingdom. And we can be proud, we can be arrogant, we can be self-confident and we can do things in our own strength and sometimes those ministries might actually look like they're pretty impressive but they have no real effect. Father we pray that uh, we would learn that lesson and that we would be humbled in the knowledge that this is spiritual warfare and that we need you, will we be encouraged to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is majestic in his his honour and glory, that he rules from on high and that he has sent his spirit to do your work through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.